0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled A Closer Look at Telehealth for HIV, Best Practices for Patient Management in a Unique Era of Care, featuring Dr. Christian B. Ramers from UC San Diego School of Medicine in San Diego, California. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash WXQ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Welcome and thank you for joining us. We're gonna take a closer look at telehealth for HIV and talk about best practices for patient management in a unique era of care. My name is Christian Ramers. I'm an infectious disease specialist and chief of population health at the Family Health Centers of San Diego. And I'll be joined later by my colleague, Donald Young, a person living with HIV who will share his perspectives as well. By way of background, I wanna start by discussing the framework with which we think we can eliminate HIV in the United States. Ending the HIV epidemic has been a priority uh, for those treating and managing HIV as well as for those in public health. And we've come together with four basic principles and four basic targets of of how we think we can eliminate and end the HIV epidemic. And I'm gonna elaborate on each of these in terms of how telehealth interacts with each of these four areas. First, we really need to diagnose all people with HIV as early as possible. This is important to prevent onward spread of HIV, to get people into care, and to get their viral loads as low as possible so they're not infectious. Secondly, we need to treat people with HIV rapidly and effectively to reach sustained virologic suppression for many reasons, not only for the benefits of the person being treated for their own health so they don't progress to have complications of HIV, but also because we know treatment works as prevention. Speaking of prevention, that's the third bucket here. Preventing new HIV transmissions by using proven interventions, including pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, as well as syringe services programs is really going to be key to keep HIV incidence low and prevent new infections from happening. And finally, we know that there have been outbreaks or epidemics in certain vulnerable areas in our country. And we think responding quickly to potential outbreaks uh, to get needed prevention and treatment services to people who need them, is also very important. Of course, COVID has significantly impacted the ability to provide clinical care in so many different ways, and here's just a few. Our hospitals have been overwhelmed at different surge points, especially during the winter, and non-essential services, including many outpatient activities, were scaled back or suspended during the COVID-19 pandemic. Many staff were reassigned or repurposed, being very disruptive to our usual way of offering care. In addition, prior to COVID-19, communities impacted by the HIV epidemic already experienced barriers to care, including testing, uh, seeing trained medical providers, as well as all the wraparound services that come with HIV, such as those provided by the Ryan White Program. And finally, populations disproportionately impacted by the HIV epidemic are also more likely to report a significant impact from the COVID-19 epidemic. We know that there are socioeconomic factors, social determinants of health, and vulnerability and exposure to COVID-19 because of geography, essential work, and other factors. So when we look at specific populations uh, broken down by race and ethnicity, on the table here, you can see that several populations, including Hispanic, Latino populations, Black, African-American, and American Indian, have really suffered disproportionate numbers of hospitalizations and deaths related to COVID, somewhere in the order of two to threefold as common to have hospitalizations and deaths, and these are the very populations that, that suffer health disparities with respect to HIV as well. So as you can see, these overlapping pandemics may actually have additive effects on certain populations. Telehealth has grown tremendously, especially beginning in March, and April of 2020, when the COVID pandemic really started hitting in the United States. The orange lines tell us uh, the difference in the change in telehealth encounters with the real skyrocketing effect as soon as COVID started to take off as well as the dotted line, which actually shows a decrease in emergency department visits. Now this might be probably a bad thing because people were not seeking care for actual medical conditions and we had a lot of deferral of care. Suffice to say, this this figure really captures the major changes that have happened through clinical medicine and through providing care to the general public as well as patients struggling with HIV. Now there's of course good and bad aspects, benefits and challenges of moving so quickly to changing the way we do everything in terms of introducing telemedicine. Starting with the benefits, there have been a silver linings to actually using more telehealth. We've been able to overcome some of our typical geographic and time barriers. Some patients have trouble uh, reaching their, their providers uh, and actually being able to just reach them over the phone or over the internet has is, is, uh, been a nice solution to that problem. In this way, we think we've been able to, act to expand access to high quality care for some people especially those in rural environments or in areas where there are not many medical providers, using uh, telemedicine, telehealth, and other modalities has allowed us to connect better with providers and provide high quality care. There's also potential for cost savings uh, to do with transportation, parking costs, making things more accessible for patients. And from a patient satisfaction perspective, there's increased convenience where patients don't have to take two buses across town Uh, go, go to somewhere that's inconvenient, take time off work for a medical visit. Of course, it has not been without challenges. We worry about reliable infrastructure. Many patients may not have a reliable phone or a phone number that changes. Maybe they don't have a smartphone. Maybe the internet connection is weak and can interfere with care that way. This is a new technology and behavior change is hard. So limited adoption by the major stakeholders, whether they be providers, clinics, or patients themselves, There's been some discussion about elderly individuals who may not be technologically savvy, uh, having to learn new skills in order to uh, successfully meet with their doctor or their provider via telehealth. There's really a Darth or a lack of supportive tools to train people in how to do this. Like I mentioned, it's a new technology uh, and and anything new needs training. Patient acceptability is another important aspect here. Some patients really want that in-person visit with their provider. Some use it as a social visit. They may be lonely and want to come into the clinic, and some just may not be comfortable with the technology. There are, of course, legal and regulatory issues here, rules and regulations that govern healthcare in terms of how we are allowed to practice medicine and how we are going to get reimbursed. Of course, it's great if something is available, but clinics and hospitals and providers really won't do it unless it's properly reimbursed. Finally, there are some things that just absolutely need to be done in person. And we'll go through those in subsequent slides. For example, the physical exam, still a very important part of our visit, important part of uh, of patient rapport. Laboratory tests, obviously uh, a limited number of them can be done at home. Most require uh, blood draw in a lab. And then other things such as biometric measurements, uh, certain tests such as uh, x-rays or echocardiography really can only be done in person. And it takes a nuanced approach to decide what needs to be done in person and what can be done safely in a telemedicine environment. So back to our four-tiered approach to how we're going to end the epidemic, I'm gonna go through each one of them and really talk about how telehealth can can make a a major impact and and transform access to quality care in each of these areas. Firstly, in terms of diagnosing, we've seen that HIV self-testing has been endorsed by major guidelines, uh, very effective and very easy to use and then having counseling immediately available via telephone or telemedicine uh, can certainly expand testing and diagnose people who are um, heretofore undiagnosed. The need for partner services or disease intervention services also can happen nearly instantly for somebody who takes a test at home or even takes a peer test or a test out in the community and needs to be uh, rapidly connected or linked to care uh, with a provider right away. With respect to prevention, Telehealth really allows us to have increased reach to do that risk reduction counseling, uh, to advise patients on how to avoid becoming HIV positive. PrEP and PEP can be accomplished quite easily via virtual visits with a prescriber. Uh, We can call in prescriptions for PrEP medications or PEP medications without having to inconvenience the patient to go across town, get over those transportation barriers and have have a visit. And finally, behavioral interventions can definitely be Uh, delivered via telemedicine or telehealth. Thirdly, uh, treating patients, which is the bulk of what we really do, can also be accomplished via telemedicine. Linkage to care and really um, anchoring patients in their care uh, services can occur via telemedicine and be more convenient for the patients. Likewise, case management visits, getting through paperwork, getting over those logistical hurdles and barriers to care can be accomplished conveniently without having to have that in-person visit. HIV specialists can be more easily accessible to patients because of transportation and and geography in rural areas. And then finally, ongoing counseling and supportive services can all be accomplished. All those wraparound services that keep people in treatment um, can occur via telemedicine. Finally, responding to specific situations such as outbreaks, we can bring resources from really around the country or around a state to a rural area, for example, that needs a, a rapid assessment of what's going on. We can increase access to prevention services very rapidly, for example, in places where they may not be available. And in places where the public health workforce is limited, this allows us to um, expand rapidly as well. Zeroing in on prevention services, um, at-home HIV testing, as I mentioned, and counseling uh, can easily be uh, supported by telemedicine and by uh, telehealth services. Linking to PEP and PrEP through prevention services uh, can be accomplished as well. Retaining into care, that very crucial, Patient rapport and and, um, anchoring into clinic can be accomplished as well. And then finally, adherence support, which is so much of what we do in PrEP, can also be accomplished via telemedicine visits. And this can really apply throughout the cascade, as you can see, uh, the typical US HIV cascade data as of 2016, at the diagnosis phase, at the receipt of care, linkage, and retention in care, as well as at the viral suppression phase, Um, very uh, appropriate role for telemedicine. So hopefully you agree that telemedicine is feasible and indeed offers the potential to improve access to HIV care services. COVID-19 has really forced this to happen, but really provided the opportunity to scale and support a well-planned, staffed, and trained approach to providing HIV care through telemedicine. However, I think we all know intuitively that its degree of effectiveness depends on the implementation of these strategies. And still, despite our best efforts, vulnerable populations due to socioeconomic or social determinants of health may fall into the digital divide and be disadvantaged by these new technology. So translating these telehealth models into outpatient clinics uh, really requires us to take a closer look at some of the practical aspects here. Are we talking about full video telemedicine? Are we talking about telephone visits, kind of just the lowest common denominator? Are we, are we going to try to implement both in our clinics? We really need to take an assessment of what type of technology our patients have. Do all of our patients have video capability, strong internet connections and a smartphone? Or do we wanna use kind of an easily accessible lowest common denominator? Are our providers and our clinics and our infrastructure prepared to implement telehealth? Is the patient willing and able to use the technology? Do they require some type of training or introduction to these changes? And do they have hesitations that we need to address to improve patient satisfaction? And then finally, we have to integrate these into our current uh, systems of documentation or systems of care in order for them to be implemented smoothly. Thankfully, there's help out there. Uh, You see several resources on the screen here. The National Consortium of Telehealth Resource Centers uh, is a a government-funded agency established to help and provide uh, job tools for, for clinicians and clinics to build telehealth resources. There are resources from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services as well. And there's a Telehealth Practitioner's Guide for HIV Prevention and Care that's been put together by the CDC as well. One of the key considerations as a clinician or a clinic director is really deciding what's appropriate for telemedicine or telehealth and what is not. What's the patient like? What is their health status? Are they acutely ill? Do they have a physical complaint on their body that needs to be examined in person? Do they have privacy concerns and only wanna talk about things in person? With HIV care, many feel that initial diagnoses really do need that in-person bond uh, to retain people in care and to build trust. One of the nice ways this plays out is decoupling of laboratory testing from the actual visit itself. Obviously, laboratory testing is a crucial part of HIV care, checking people's T cell counts and their viral loads and sending other labs, and you can't necessarily do that via telemedicine. But having patients have the freedom to do their labs at their own schedule, at their own pace, um, when they're available, uh, really goes a long way in terms of making things more convenient. Couple other aspects here, uh, doing comprehensive physicals that of course needs to be done in person. Lab work needs to be done in person and sometimes paperwork does as well, but there is some flexibility with actually doing those in a decoupled way. Of course, I think the clinic and the provider needs to be flexible. As I mentioned, some patients really do want that in-person experience uh, because they're lonely, because they want to have that bond. And some patients because of uh, COVID may be afraid to come into clinic. And, And both of those different perspectives need to be honored. Looking at the clinic management perspective, the staff needs to be prepared for this, and the flow needs to be able to handle uh, both telemedicine visits as well as in-person visits for it to work appropriately. You need to make an assessment of your own technology. Is it feasible? Even practical things like are there quiet places for the provider to sit and conduct some of these visits? And then finally, I think psychosocially and medically vulnerable patients need extra attention. Um, Those that may be not suppressed for one reason or another, And those who may have unique difficulties incorporating into a telemedicine model probably deserve extra attention. So I'm gonna go through some do's and don'ts from the provider perspective. And then I'm gonna turn it over to uh, my colleague, uh, Donald Young, who's gonna give you some patient perspectives as well. First of all, as a provider, don't jump into or rush out of a session. We wanna, again, build that rapport, which may be harder to do, whether it's over the phone or over a video than you're used to doing in an in-person visit. You wanna try to make sure your technology is solid and try not to lose connection, whether it be internet connection or phone connection, as much as you can prevent against this. Those are what we don't want to do. What do we want to actually uh, do to be striving for best practice? We wanna provide options for patients. Video, if you have that capability, phone as a nice backup and a lowest common denominator. Many people could approach phone calls as if they're talking to their cousin or their friend or their auntie and just wanna have a a social visit while they're busy uh, doing something else. I think it's important to establish that the patient is uh, ready to um, uh, focus on the purpose of the visit to get the most out of it. You wanna make sure that your background and your lighting are okay so the patient can see your face and interact with you that way if you have video. Make sure that they can hear you and that you're not in a very loud environment. And likewise, assure that the patient is in a safe and private uh, environment as well, especially if you're going to be talking about sensitive things like abuse or sexual activity or things that the patient does not want other people around them to know. I would treat the visit like an in-person visit in terms of the flow and the order. Make sure that you are uh, giving the patient your full attention, turning off other distractions, maintaining eye contact with the camera so you're not looking elsewhere, and really try to engage the patient as you would in an in-person visit. Because we don't have the advantage of physical exam and our stethoscopes with us, we need to pay attention to voice nuances, tempo, pitch, and inflection. And these can be equally as important as visual uh, observations. And then finally, still be flexible for in-person visits. If you feel uncomfortable with the chief complaint, if you feel like you need to see the patient in person, I think that's okay to really stop the visit and say, we need to do this in person and also honor uh, patient's preferences. So, Mr. Young, I want to turn it over to you and, and give us your ideas from the patient perspective.
2: Certainly, Dr. Ramers. My name is Donald Young, and I was newly diagnosed with HIV back in December of 2019. And um, one of the biggest don'ts for telemedicine for me is don't be late. Don't arrive late to the appointment. And I often try to log on early to make give myself a little time to make sure that the lighting is correct. And some of the other things that Dr. Raymer spoke of, making sure that my Wi-Fi connection is strong. And I try to definitely not multitask. If it's a doctor's appointment, I treat it as almost as it's an in-person appointment. I always have my questions ready for the doctor before we start the um, appointment. And I don't approach each of them like it's um, a social visit. I'm not talking to a friend or, Although we do have a good rapport, my um, ID doctor and I, I try to keep it formal. That is my doctor, not one of them. my homeboys on the street, just kicking it. So that's one of the big don'ts. Um, I do. I try to find a safe, quiet spot. Sometimes my appointments happen when I am um, on the way to work or or just got a break at work where I'm not in the luxury of the home, but I am at a quiet spot at work or some quiet spot in a restaurant even or in the park where I can be alone and no one's around and I can really talk to the doctor. I do try to share my goals. Uh, I pre-mark my goals, my medical goals with my doctor so that um, we can be on the same page. I tend to speak fast myself personally, like when I'm just talking to my friends, but on this telemedicine, there's usually sometimes a delay. So I make sure that I'm done with my statement and I kind of like Wait for the doctor to respond, and not to become agitated. Like, are you not listening to me? Because there's a delay. He hears it a couple of seconds later. So I try to stay um, stay on on point with that, and completing the recommended instructions and tests prior to the visits. If I get my labs, you know, and I know I had we the doctor spoke about decoupling. If I'm not going to do it like we used to do it, where I saw the doctor and then run downstairs in the basement of the, of the hospital and get my lab works done. I have to make sure that before it's time for my next follow-up for my HIV care, I only see them, you know, every 60 days, every 90 days. So I make sure in that time that I'm going to get my blood work done because those numbers are just as important, more important to me than they are to my doctor. So I try to make sure that I stay up on my lab work so that I can have all those things ready and have them confronted when I get to my doctor and if there's anything I need to see I can see it right on my chart or one of the electronic portals that brings me and my lab results almost instantaneously when they become available.
1: That's great thank you for sharing Mr. Young if you could give us maybe a couple of examples of uh, things in your own life where where telehealth has gone well I understand that you had uh, a COVID scare earlier can you tell me about that and how tele- telehealth and telemedicine works through that episode?
2: Like I say, I was diagnosed in 2019 and the pandemic really hit March of 2020. So, you know, I I got on my medication almost instantaneously after diagnosis and that was in December. So by the time I went back in January, I was already at undetectable, but um, it was almost about to be the beginning of the COVID pandemic when telemedicine was just, you know, at the cusp, just about to break off. So I had an exposure. I was around somebody who tested positive for COVID. So they thought that maybe I had been infected. So I had to do that immediate quarantine thing. So they put me into a hotel. So I was freaking out because I had just started my medication um, for my HIV care. And now I'm quarantined. So how long is this going to last? No one was sure. But then they had it where I could still be almost triaged daily. Someone came around put the thing on my finger to check my OT levels. And then those results were immediately sent to my infectious disease doctor who was working almost in tandem with the guys who were watching me for this COVID scare. So that was really crucial because now I'm facing not just newly diagnosed HIV, but now this new pandemic that no one was too sure of who was uh, susceptible to it, you know, how was it transmitted? So it was a really scary time. And telemedicine was important because if something went on, I could just take a picture of something that if I was coughing up some little blood, if something looked weird to me, I could take a picture of it, send it straight to my doctor, and he could respond via our next telemedicine visit, or could just respond via text and say, you're good, don't worry about it, or you know, let's go to patient first or some next urgent care facility.
1: No, thanks for that example. I think you've captured, you know, some of the challenges and the benefits in that, in that same yes. case, you know, challenges being newly diagnosed HIV. I want to connect with that patient and make them feel like they're okay mm-hmm. and they're supported and build that rapport and that trust. And sometimes that's hard over the phone or over the video. Um, you know, I want to see a COVID patient in person and see how they're breathing and see how they're doing and see if I have to admit them in the hospital. And you can't quite get that but you also mentioned that you sort of decoupled things too you had someone take your oxygen and then send that immediately back to your provider
2: so that's really an advantage of having that immediate information and that's how i saw it with telemedicine it was almost because i am a patient that uh that needs to always stay in the know i need to know what's happening with me almost for my own psychiatric part uh, i need to know that things are going good before, cause I can, you know, freak out and the least blip on the number makes me think the worst. But with this telemedicine, it puts doctors almost at your fingertips. It makes you, your, your care, you know, even if you can't get to the doctor, it makes it accessible to, you know, some people were not coming out for the pandemic, refused to come out just because they didn't want to be exposed to COVID-19 telemedicine made that person have still continuum of care was still there. So it sounds like you really liked and appreciated the increased access that you had to your provider. Oh, certainly. It was, you know, it was one of the if there was anything good to come out of the current pandemic, telemedicine or the push or the more uh, accessible to telemedicine, that was certainly a plus. Okay.
1: Thanks for sharing that. Can you think of another kind of example of maybe more not sick with COVID, but more of a routine visit that you've had with your provider?
2: Oh, yes, certainly. My, like I said, my, my appointments were uh, every 90 days. Uh, Beginning when I first was diagnosed, it was every 60 days I saw my ID doctor. But now that it's every 90 days, I have the option, I have the choice to either have it be a telemedicine visit or a in-person visit. And he understands that sometimes I really just want to get in because I'm one of the people who don't get to talk to a lot of people about my my HIV status. I don't you know, not that I'm ashamed of it at all, but I just don't talk about it much. When I have an opportunity to get in and talk to my infectious disease doctor, it gives me an opportunity to visit and have a almost one on one conversation with someone who knows me. And, and understands what I'm going through. So it, it makes it almost um, gives me more options. And I like the options, the choice to maybe go in, see the doctor. And if it's something that's not pressing or no, I, I don't have time to go in, still have a full doctor's visit through telemedicine.
1: So, Mr. Young, for routine HIV care, you know, we do need labs uh, to right. sort of monitor things. How, how do you uh, decouple that?
2: I decouple it because he, when he sends the referral for the labs, either I can go in have the labs done right right there when I get it or it gives me the option to go back to work finish with my work they set an appointment to go to um the lab place where I get my labs done it gives me a choice to make an appointment with them and they can find something that fits into my schedule I'm not mandated to go directly to this lab to get the get the get the work done I can you know shop around and go where I feel comfortable so it sounds like it's working pretty well for you for routine it, care. Yeah, It is certainly for the routine care. And then if something is urgent care, we have urgent care so accessible where I don't have to go right to the ER. I can go to the urgent care. And when I spoke about my, my chart or that electronic medical record, that gives my doctor access to it. And then it comes right to me and we can set up a telemedicine visit, in emergency the next day, or I can just keep my regular telemedicine or hybrid visit when it comes up in 90 days.
1: That's great. Um, Can you give me an example, maybe one more example of something that doesn't quite work so well
2: in telemedicine where you really feel like you need to see the doctor in person? I had, um, uh, to not get nasty, TMI, too much information, but I had a bloody stool. And it was, I had already been diagnosed with all my medication, everything was good. So I didn't know if it was an effect from being on the medicine, or it was some new thing that I needed to see the doctor about. So I took my smartphone, I went to the bathroom, took a picture of it, sent it to the doctor. And the doctor said, you know, knowing my my temperament anyway, he said, you know what? We're going to get you an appointment. We're going to get you in here. I'm going to see what it's about, see what's happening. Because, it, and it turned out to be absolutely nothing. Something that would have gone away if I sat still for two days and maybe took a laxative or stool softener. But he knew that, because he's my doctor and he knows my temperament. He knew that I wanted to see him to physically have that comfort of knowing that nothing was wrong. So, so in, in those instances, there are some times when you're, you're, as the doctor, you have to know the patient and know that, Hey, let me get this guy in here to see about this. Cause this is something that's going to freak him out.
1: Yeah. And I would say from a provider perspective, there's the acuity, you know, that could be a serious thing. There's the yeah. urgency. It's something that's really happening right now. And then there's important physical exam parts. I want to be able to examine you, see how you're doing, and then lab tests to sort of see uh, what your blood levels look like. All those things really depend on an in-person visit. So you need to have that flexibility to do both. It sounds like really overall, you're happy with the, the flexibility, the option to have
2: telehealth and the option to have in-person as well. Is that right? That is, that's the case. Certainly, I see a hybrid model and approach to medicine moving forward, being beneficial to not just the patient, but to uh, medical professionals across the board.
1: All right, well, thank you for sharing so much, Mr. Young, your experiences. Um, We're gonna wrap up, I think, and uh, I'll finish with some key takeaways and really what I think things look like going forward. Clearly, telehealth visits have made care more patient-focused. As you heard, uh, clinics have really become more flexible, uh, eliminated some barriers that have been uh, really problems of people accessing care, and really just being more more, uh, patient-focused and flexible. You can't just jump right into this. Everyone, including the clinical staff, providers, uh, those running the clinic, the nursing assistants, the front office, all requires training, even the patients, to get comfortable with new modalities. We emphasize this a little bit, ensuring that both providers and patients have a quiet and private space is critical. Um, Sometimes things are very sensitive and need to be discussed in private, and especially dealing with HIV, sexually transmitted diseases. We don't want everybody around the room hearing about the visit, So we need to make sure that there are appropriate spaces for those things to occur. We also wanna implement strategies and identify resources that support or extend telehealth services, allowing our teams to really provide effective care. That's the ultimate goal is to do accessible and effective care. And really we might not get this right on the first try. So employing continuous quality improvement and seeking feedback, not only from your own clinical staff but really especially from patients. Uh, and, and those providing the clinical services so you can make this better for everybody. Mm-hmm. Finally, we've got to assess patient and provider satisfaction. If we start doing something and it's great for one of us, but not for the other one, it, it'll be hard to really continue that and make it sustainable. And then as we heard from Mr. Young, you always still need to fall back on the old, old-fashioned in-person visit, whether because of acuity or doing labs, or even just building rapport and having that, uh, that trust between provider and patient that still needs to be done when appropriate. So, I want to thank you, Mr. Young, for sharing your experiences and thank you for your attention for this activity. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Health HIV. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WXQ860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated.